You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. His grip tightened on my crutch. Why are you always angry with me? I looked up at him, aching everywhere, frustrated that I hadn't been able to stop what they'd done to Winona, embarrassed that I had to show my weakness in front of him by sitting down, angry with everything. You want the short list or the long one? I'm tired of it, he said calmly, but the rims of his ears were red and his motions to prop the crutch in a corner were too fast. Ever since camp, you've been picking at me and my ideas. Picking at him? You are the one doing stuff to irritate me, I said, heart-pounding. Shall I start with today and go backward? You hit me with a pain charm. You got in the way. I apologized for that, he interrupted, his green eyes squinting. You put me in a cage, made me fight for my life in the rat fights. He smacked a button on the panel and the lift eased to a jerky halt. In the distance, a faint buzzer sounded. Your life was never in danger, and I apologized for that, too. His eyes were virulent, and something in me liked it. You hunted me like an animal, I said, his anger fueling my own. Smelling of ozone and broken trees, Trent leaned over me, his hands on the arms of the chair, and his suit coat opened to show his trim waist. You broke into my desk, he said tightly. You stole something that could put me and my entire species in the ground. You think I'm going to ignore that? I wouldn't hurt you now. The chair shook as he pushed himself up and away again, standing with a fist on his hip and his stance tight. Fine, I could write that one off, but it was easy to come up with things about Trent that irritated me. You kill people, I said, coming out with what really bothered me. All the time. I hate it. And you can't. His voice was mocking, ticking me off as he turned to face me. Someday you'll thank me for that particular skill. I'm not proud of the ability, but I'm glad I have it, and you're alive because of it. I'm not asking for gratitude, but stop rubbing my nose in the ugly things I do to help you that you are afraid to do yourself. Oh, my God, he thought the ability to kill people was a skill? You murder your own associates, I shouted, my stomach clenching as I leaned forward in the chair and gestured wildly. Jonathan practically raised you, and you ran him down under a pack of dogs like a common thief. Ivy and Jinx kill people, too, but never those who trust them. Jonathan isn't dead. Don Cook is the author of the Truth series, including First Truth, Hidden Truth, Forgotten Truth, and Last Truth, and the Decoy Princess series, including The Decoy Princess and Princess at Sea. Writing as Kim Harrison, she's the author of the Books of the Hollows series featuring Rachel Morgan, including Dead Witch Walking, The Good, the Bad, and the Dead, Every Witch Way But Dead, and six others. Her latest novel in the series is A Perfect Blood. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to call you Kim. That's fine, because that's who I am today. (laughs) (laughs) It must be fun being able to switch back and forth from one identity to the other. You know, it is a relief. Um, I am very reticent by nature, and so it takes a lot to get me out of my chair. And putting my Kim on, so to speak, helps me do that. And then when I get home from tour, I take Kim off and throw her in a closet and never see her again for another 12 months, and I love it. Well, that's uh, not unlike uh, what one of your characters might be able to do in uh, the Hollows series. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm channeling Rachel a little, yeah. I, well, I think that's uh, not, not unimportant. You know, when we hear the term fantasy, uh, the first thing we think of is something like Lord of the Rings, where the story unfolds in a world that's been created from whole cloth. You're writing fantasy, but it's not that kind of fantasy. That's a, what's generally called a second world fantasy. That's completely apart from ours. You write what's called urban fantasy. I'd like you to explain why you chose with the Rachel Morgan books to write urban fantasy and what exactly urban fantasy is. Well, urban fantasy is taking those uh, paranormal creatures like werewolves and and angels and demons and putting them in a real-world setting with computers and cell phones and traffic jams and PTA meetings. Uh, It's actually been around for a very long time. Um, I Dream of Jeannie is basically urban fantasy, 
or um, well, Dark I... Shadows would be <laughs> urban fantasy. If you want to go to the movies, uh, recently we've had the Underworld series. Um, that's urban fantasy. You take those fantasy creatures and put them in reality, and there you go. Uh, I really like writing it because uh, my reading history when I was growing up was a lot of, of um, fairy tales and also science fiction. I love the readers, uh, the, excuse me, the writers in the 70s, the um, Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein. Those were my heroes. And um, meshing those two worlds of fantasy and reality was just a natural step. And I really have the, the authors who came before me to thank for allowing me to do this and actually make a living at it because I can't imagine doing anything else. Well, I, you know, I guess the of those, the Ray Bradbury seems to stand out for me mm-hmm. because he really did do, uh, in prose, put um, the supernatural in very ordinary suburban yes, settings. Yes, Dandelion Wine is my favorite book, and that is the first time I saw monsters in the everyday. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, when you started this series, you uh, did something, you altered the the world in an interesting way. <laughs> and there's a diff- there are different approaches to this. You can either presume that we've always known about these critters and they've always lived beside us or they came out. So I'd like you to talk about developing your approach um, both in terms of what you liked as fantasy and what you planned for as the series t- would unfold. Oh, you know, I really did not plan when I started this series. It was a short story that I wrote when I was trying to find publication way before the Dawn books got published. And I was not thinking. I was just trying to take the most oddball characters I could think of and um, put them in a bar and see what happened and still try to keep the main character be as accessible as the girl next door, which I I think Rachel pretty much is. But I really had no plan at the time um, about how to, to create the world and develop the world. I was just taking it one book at a time. And it, it's been a lot of fun. I, I actually uh, really enjoy a lot of humor in my writing. And it kind of it shows right in the beginning because Rachel's trying to catch a leprechaun for tax evading. I mean, in Dead Witch Walking. And uh, that kind of sets the tone. And then you find out that the supernaturals have been out of the closet, so to speak, since the 40s when a bioengineered tomato, oh, I'm sorry, the 60s, when a bioengineered tomato came out and uh, pretty much wiped out half the human population, which then exposed the inlanders, the, the paranormal people, who had been living side by side with us till then. So it was the attack of the killer it tomatoes. It was the attack of the killer tomatoes. <laughs> yes, it really was. Were, had you seen that movie? I hadn't, but I have since then. And it is, it is, yeah, it needed to be done. It really did. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your books, um, as I read A Perfect Blood, is this is really character-driven fiction. Yes, it's it very is. intensely about the people. Mm-hmm. For all that they're, um, they're a menagerie of species and critters and with different powers and different kind of living and even different sizes. Some of them are about maybe they're not much bigger than my thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about the characters. And I think that's an interesting approach to this. Talk about developing characters who aren't human but to whom your human readers are going to relate to. Well, uh you're right. A lot of my characters are not your your typical that you'd find. Um, Jinx, he's like f- four inches tall, but he's he's like a Chihuahua. He's small but powerful, and he thinks he's he's ten feet tall, and he's probably the most dangerous person out there actually because of his size and his willingness to use his his sword. Uh, but as far as the characters go, I like using paranormal people because they 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 bring out they they, sh- they showcase the the inner demons within us the the vampires are the users and the abusers and the abused all rolled up into one and the witches are kind of like the innovators um, always trying new things and uh, living with their mistakes and the pixies uh, they're they're totally green I mean they're <laughs> they are of the earth and um, I like using them because it's easier for the, the reader to um, identify with them. They immediately know where they're coming from. But I love my characters, and I spend a lot of time with them. 
Well, that's, I think, one of the real strengths of this kind of fiction is that it allows the writer to um, take uh, personal inner demons and conflicts that are really tough to talk about mm-hmm. um, are tough to even address in um, uh suburban literary mm-hmm. type fiction and you can get all those things out and make them plot points yes. and I think that's what's really fun is that you can take all these kind of uh, uh, confusion about sexual identity um, problems you know about impulse control and just put and them lay it out on the table exactly it's an and it's in a safe environment because the people who are reading it know that they can enjoy it and think about it and and go over things in their mind and they can close the book and go on with their lives and yes i love touching on social issues but very lightly very lightly now uh, one of the things that that uh, appealed to me at the very beginning of this book um, we have have Rachel, who's a witch, a creature of our nightmares, and she is locked in one of our nightmares, a bureaucratic nightmare <laughs> at the DMV. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that might be a little bit of, um, uh, yeah, drawing on real experience there, yes. Uh, t- one of the things I think is so interesting is the way that you play the mundane of uh, off against the the supernatural and the mm-hmm. exotic to create these surreal and absurd situations that are really quite funny. You uh, you clearly are having a lot of fun with these books. I do. I have a great time with these, and I'm going to be sorry to you know write the last word in a couple years and close the book on Rachel. But she wants her happy ending, and I'm about ready to give it to her. But I'm going to miss her. I really am. Well, now uh, you've lived with this character for how long? Ah, uh, the first one came out in 2004. And so it's probably about that long, yeah. Maybe a year more. Now, one of the things that in- interested me as I was talking, thinking about this book is this is a book about aftermath in that this is the aftermath of the turn and the exposure of these of these critters and, and these species that, you know, these species that live among us, that have lived hidden among us and maybe, you know, feasted off us or as parasites in, in some way. Um, and it struck me that you were writing, the world in this book has trans, been transformed from the world before, but you were writing these books in a world that had been transformed by a similar event, 9-11. And I think that the, I, that kind of uh, parallel really struck me that um, the perception of a world that we see from, the, from within going forward um, but that has been affected by an event that's completely off screen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting approach. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't noticed it until you mentioned it, but I think you're absolutely right. But I think a lot of authors uh, will do that. They will see the things around them and what they're dealing with and what society is dealing with, and it filters into their work. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about Rachel because I love her voice and I love, mm. you know, kind of experiencing the world through Rachel. Uh, she started out as a witch, but maybe a little bit more. And mm-hmm. this is a transformation that, that she's undergone. And I think that's uh, interesting because people undergo transformations within all the time, but your characters can make have it happen externally. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I have really enjoyed being able to stretch out my character development over so many books. I originally thought it was going to be a three-book series, and I you know, hurried and hurried and hurried and tried to cram everything in that I wanted to, and then it became a six-book, and I realized I can slow down. And then, I, and then I got three more books, and then I realized I can't keep her a witch. I have to make her a little something extra. And I managed to get the mythology to you know, blend and mix and, and make the next six books after that work. But yes, it's been one change after another. And it's a personal journey of, of Rachel discovering that the more powerful she gets, the more vulnerable she really is. And that her world is just shades of gray. And the people who she thought were her enemies are now the people who are helping her. And it's it's interesting because um Al, my demon, um, he was supposed to be the big, bad, ugly all the way through the series. And then he started to grow and change. And I thought, oh, great. Now i got to come up with somebody new to be the big, bad, ugly because Rachel either had to take care of him and, you know, put him away or she had to start to understand him. And 
it was far more interesting to me to have her starting to understand this big, bad, ugly, this demon who could do all these awful things and had been, you know, hounding her through several books and then realize that, oh, my gosh, he's alive because he knows how to love. And that's the only reason why he managed to survive the, you know, his his past is because he knows how to love. Well, if you have that in your big, bad, ugly character, well, you have to follow it and find out his past, and, and, and it's been wonderful. I love making my bad guys good guys. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things that, um, as, as I was reading this book, uh, really struck me was that you're willing to uh, follow your characters where they where they're going regardless. And these, this seems like the, the classic case of characters coming to life and getting away from they you. They do. They completely trash my outlines at least twice at every rewrite. They, I love to plot. I really do. And I'll spend a week to plot out a book before I start it. And then um, I remember one book. I had it all plotted out, and I knew where I was going. And I was writing the first chapter, and this character stepped out from behind a tombstone. And I said, I, I have to follow this. I have to know who this person is. And so I scrapped my whole outline and wrote her in. But I love surprises like that when I write. They come so few and far between that when they do and there's a spark, you have to follow it. Now, you have a very complicated society and species structure Um You've got vampires, you have uh, demons, you have witches, you have pigs. Yeah, they're all in there. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know you were going to include all these at the beginning? No, I didn't. And if you look at the the series as a whole, you'll see I spend a book on the witches, and I'll spend a book on the demons, and then I'll spend a book developing the werewolves, and the book on the vampires. And and now we're in book 10, and, and they're all meshing together into, I hope, a cohesive whole by the time we Uh, get done with the 12th or 13th book and no I did not plan that at all it was it was one book at a time and who I wanted to focus on because each species has their own special quirk like the werewolves are constantly battling who they are and and their baser instincts and the vampires are battling um their their users and abusers and 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 they're they're really messed up um, and the witches, they're, they've got this own dirty secret that they don't even know about, that their history is tied so closely to the demons. And when that comes out, it completely wreaks havoc with them. Well, it's, it will be as the series progresses. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's starting to get really messed up. <laughs> as you uh, created this world... Um, have you? Do you have like a Bible now, so that you uh, a spreadsheet, a database, oh, so that you know what the heck you're doing? Speaking in a manner of speaking, I have um, the Hollows Insider, which is just came out this mm-hmm. couple months ago. It is the Hollows World book, and I uh, designed it and developed it, and it has its own story arc. But everything I could think of, you know, species descriptions and timelines and, and outlines of the church and blueprints and a walking map of Cincinnati, it's all in there. Um, uh, but I had to reread the books in order to get a lot of the information because most of it I just keep up in my head. I have maybe a page per character about descriptions and whatnot. Oh, my God. But, yeah, yeah. How how could you do that? Well, (laughs) you know, if if you write and rewrite the same story like three or four times, you better have it in your head. And all the magic that's in there is based on logic, whether it, you know, it, it can't happen, but it makes sense to me. So it's easy to, to reach back in my mind and pull it out. Um, but yeah, I didn't have any notes for that. It took longer to write that than a normal Hollows book. Now, I have to ask uh, into, about the titles. <laughs> The titles, yes. All but the first one are based on movies that either Clint Eastwood has been in or directed. Yes. And and why is that? I mean, other than than we all like Clint Eastwood. And well, think- that's part of it, actually. Um, 
It started off as a marketing technique um, mm-hmm. just because they're familiar and people see them oh, and okay. it kind of makes a spark and they pick it up, which is what you want to do. You want them, mm-hmm. that's the whole job of a title is to get you to pick it up and turn it over. And I have run into readers who say, I never would have read this, but I, I saw the title and I had to take a look. Uh, the second reason is that I really like the movies that Clint Eastwood plays. I like his characters, especially the spaghetti westerns with the guy that comes in off the prairie, able to solve the town's problems in a just manner, not necessarily a legal one. Yeah, I like that character. I like that a lot. You know, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about creating this series because you did this with a little bit with the help from your editor. Is, Is that not... Creating the the series? Yeah. Oh no. Oh, well, a little bit. She, she uh, I have a fabulous editor. Her name's Diana Gill, mm-hmm. and um, she has been with me since the beginning of the Hollows, mm-hmm. and we work really well together. We've read the same books as we've grown up, and we 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 know we both have the same idea of what makes a good, you know, novel. And I was really lucky to have landed with her when Harper picked up the books. Um, and she she will often throw an idea out that mm-hmm. will cause me to kill characters or create new ones or um, uh, Biss, my gargoyle, my adolescent gargoyle. He was her idea, and I just fell in love with it. Um, but, yes, she is my guiding light, mm-hmm. and she is the first person who ever gets to see the books. I don't have any, you know, first readers or beta readers. She gets it raw. Oftentimes she has no clue what she's going to get, which is kind of how I like it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine writing anything else without her editing me. Now, uh, one of the things I think that's interesting is that in a series, you know, you have uh, of the, a different kinds of arcs. You have arcs within the novel, arcs within the series, uh, maybe uh the first three books have their own arc that leads to the next arc. That mm-hmm. they, and so I'd like you to just talk about, like, uh, keeping track of these plots. And, and you, you you clearly like plotting because the plot in this book is really toe-tappingly exciting. And, I, and we will talk a little bit about it, not too much. But um, I'd like you to just talk about crafting these plots in um, wheels within wheels. Wheels within wheels. Well, um, I have always known the end of the hollows of what I wanted. Um, the whole I've, series? No. Well, I've, I have this last scene in my head of where I want Rachel to be and who I want to have with her. Um, this is the ending I thought I was going to have in book three. Okay. I really, I honestly thought it was going to be a three book series. And then uh, when I, I got six, it was like, I can really expand this. And I do have a story arc that goes from one to six. And that's when we lose a major uh, love interest. And Rachel's life is completely thrown for a loop. But if you look at those first six books, you can definitely see a story arc. Um, so it's it's my writing style is more along the lines of I know where I want to go. I don't plot the huge long story arc. I will only plot the book I'm working on. Um, but I throw a lot of threads in there that I can pick and choose from later as I go on and, and get deeper into the story arc. So a lot of it, again, is just keeping everything in my head and giving myself a huge palette to work from so that when I go to the next book, I can pick and choose what I want. I have some elements. I've got a red wolf that I mentioned way back in like book five or six. And I'd love to get back to that, the mythology of this red wolf that Rachel turned into. But I know I'm not going to. And I'm just, I'm, I'm torn because I really wanted to get back to it. But it's not going to make the final cut. But there are some things that do. And it's been fun juggling all of these and I listen to the readers a lot, too. They tell me what they want to see. And because I work so far ahead of my, my uh, publishing schedule, I can oftentimes work their wishes in there, too, which has been a lot of fun. Well, that's really interesting. You know, you talked about uh, your interest in fairy tales. And I talked with a, a gal who had um, studied fairy tales as, as warning stories. And, and I, I think that you, I'd like you to just talk about, you know, the the mythology that's 
that you keep, I guess, mm-hmm. somewhere in the back of your mind. You mm-hmm. must have some very odd dreams to, to power this You know, I book. don't ever dream about my characters, ever, ever, ever. Uh, when I was growing up, I read a lot of fairy tales. Um, I read, they actually have a blue fairy tale book and a red fairy tale book and a green fairy tale book and a blue fairy tale book. And I read them all, and I was getting the same story over and over and over again from different perspectives of different cultures. And I know this is what I'm drawing on when I start to create a new species or a new world. And um, look, just take uh, Jinx, for example. He's my pixie. Um, his creation was my frustration that all the books that I had been reading couldn't tell the difference between a pixie and a fairy. There just was no definition. So I thought, okay, I'll bring my science background in. And he's small, so he's probably a nectivore. Um, he, he probably has a large family like bees would. And he's probably very vicious, and he has to defend his territory vigorously, so he's probably kind of sassy. And so from bringing in my um, history of reading the fairy tales of what is you know, common knowledge and, and folklore, and then drawing on my science background to try to give it some logic, the two mesh really well. And so I get something that sounds very plausible. Well, tell us a little bit about your science background. Oh, <laughs> I actually have a uh, degree in biology, a, a bachelor's degree in biology. And, of course, you can't get a really good job at, at, in biology with that. I, I worked for a couple of years in a chemical company and um, ended up writing books. I never went to school to write books. I took the bare minimum to get through Uh, But I read and read and read and read and read, and that's what I draw on when I write. Uh, But I did have a lot of catch-up work to do as far as spelling and grammar and and sentence structure and whatnot when I decided to write. Well, the science uh, background, now that that I understand that, that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. because uh, one of the things that I like about these books is that they seem very logical and organized. Everything seems very well grounded. And I think there's a, for all that it's, uh, tagged with the label urban fantasy. I think science fiction is almost a, a better description of these. Um, I'm often shelved in science. I'm shelved in horror. I'm shelved in science fiction. <laughs> I'm I'm shelved in young adult. Sometimes it's although these books are not young adult. Yeah, they put me everywhere. I just want them to put me on the bestseller rack up front, and I'll be happy there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of there is a lot of science in it. The the nice thing about urban fantasy is that you can bring in and write from a mystery standpoint, or a crime scene standpoint, or a chiclet standpoint, or you, it it's just very rich. It draws all sorts of artists, writing artists from all sorts of genres, and. I guess the defining characteristic of urban fantasy is the characters, not this writing style. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned all of those kind of uh, genre, subgenres. I found all of them in this book, <laughs> and I and you and they were all done in a way that I, as a guy, could really enjoy, oh, thank which you. is good. I mean, you know, because the. Uh, the, the romance aspect uh, on this is very is, light. It's very, very light. light. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. nice, nicely handled. Now, uh, one of the things, I, talk a little bit about your concept of vampires because I think they're very, very interesting. And we have a great vampire, kind of a dual character, vampire character in this novel, Nina. I, I, oh, I, Nina. I yes. love that way you handled that yes. because uh, one thing that's nice is that. When we first meet her, we think she's just going to be a throwaway character. Mm-hmm. Yes, Nina actually is a, um, she works at the DMV office, and she is a very low vampire on the totem pole. She's living, um, she's just like you and me. She has a mild, you know, case of bloodlust, uh, but the the master vampires, for the most, are ignoring her. So she's she's very innocent as far as vampires go. And well, now you said she's living. Talk about the difference oh, between living yes. and dead vampires. Um, the living <laughs> and the dead vampires. Well, I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. And I love the traditional Bram Stoker 
vampire with the light restriction and you know the need for the blood and and the darkness and and the you know the the scary vampire but I also knew I didn't want to write a story that took place all in the dark so I thought yeah and this is before Twilight came out so you know we we didn't have a whole lot of vampires that could walk in the sun and I didn't want to use sunscreen to make it possible so I thought okay I've got the dead vampires but before they die, they're living. And they're, it's a virus, actually, that, that causes the vampirism. So until they die their first death, they're just like you and me walking around. But they know that they're going to die and they're going to lose their soul. So they're kind of like the coddled children of the wealthy who get everything they want. And, and life is good because they know their afterlife is going to be hell. And... Uh, so Nina is one of these living vampires, and she's actually doing pretty good. But um, when Rachel enters the picture, uh, it kind of sends up a warning flag, and a very old vampire kind of mentally slips into Nina, which the old ones can do. It's, it's in the mythology that's out there. And uh, this vampire is actually a guy vampire. And I had a ton of fun trying to get a masculine feel to this very feminine character. And I think I did pretty well with it. I haven't had a lot of complaints, but when I read Nina, I'm actually seeing a man, even though she's in a skirt and has high heels. And then in the next paragraph, this older vampire leaves Nina, and then she, she is again very feminine. And um, she's, it's actually, she's on a, a very bad roller coaster right now because having this master vampire in her mind is creating havoc. It's really well handled. And I thought it was an interesting way to talk about the, you know, gender identity issues. Yeah, that, talk it, this, that was not my intent when I started, but I thought, you know what, I should go with this and see where it goes. And, and I had a good time with Nina. We will see Nina again. I hope so, because yes. it seemed to, to that there was a lot more for Nina to be done and mm-hmm. to be done with Nina. Yes. Now, uh, we have a, a lot of old characters who who have come back, and when you're writing a long series like this, you have to kind of leave your your uh, readers some some breadcrumbs, mm-hmm. as it were. So talk about bringing back old characters from old books. You know, Trent, for example. There's a lot in your reading. We there's a lot of history there. Yes, there is. <laughs> Trent and Rachel actually have known each other since like twelve and thirteen. Um, off and on. They were both at the same camp, which was actually a medical camp. Um, But Rachel doesn't remember a lot of it, and Trent does, which can cause problems. But as I'm starting to close the series out, we are starting to bring back some of the older characters and um, saying goodbye to some of the middle characters. And uh, yes, I love circling back in my writing, and it's going to be a challenge these next couple books to bring all the threads together. I've got a couple bad guys we need to take care of. Uh, I don't think I mentioned Nick in A Perfect Flood, but the character, the, um, the readers know him, and they want to see Nick get his comeuppance as much as I do. So that'll be in the next book, but bringing back the old characters is great. I love it, seeing how they've changed. As a writer, when you do this, do you put everything in and then just uh, uh, revise it out? Or does it just kind of, does this flow off the tip of your pen? It really flows off the tip of my pen. I like writing from Rachel's point of view. Um, I like seeing the world through her eyes because she is a wonderful filter. I can just throw one sentence on there to kind of clue the reader into what we're doing and who we're bringing back. And uh, because it's from Rachel's point of view, it, they have to accept that what she said or what she's remembering is enough to, that, that that's all they need in order to remember and what's going on and, and set them and, and get them going on the right path as far as what's going to happen next. I really like the, uh, the science aspect of this, and, and especially in terms of the magic, because you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke, and he has the famous quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from well, magic. magic yeah. And you you flip that on its heels and give us a, a sufficiently advanced magic that seems like a technology. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a good thing to do. Yes. And that's pulling on my science background again. I love genetics. And um, the Hollow series does touch on genetics quite a bit, right from the start with the tomato is a genetically engineered tomato. Um, 
that goes wrong. And then um, the demons and the witches, the difference between them is a very small genetic issue that will generally cause um, a lethal reaction in witches if they're too close to their demon heritage. And, and yes, I love working with genetics. Well, too, I, I was just thinking when I read, there's a, a part in this book, where, there's a scene where Rachel prepares a spell like in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And it's like reading about somebody's science experiment. Yes. It's pretty, it's, you know, it seems. She's got the balances. Yeah. And the, yeah. And the, the graduated cylinders and the Bunsen burners. And yeah, that's my science coming through. <laughs> When it, in terms of some of the the magic that we find in this books, do you like do research into what is generally quote held to be and I'm uh, real magic? Uh, no, I do not actually. I actually have only one magic book that I bought like six or seven years ago, just to kind of check and see you know what the accepted was you know what what everybody thought was going on. And, and I read through it and I said, you know what, I can come up with something better than that. <laughs> I will, I make everything up, but I will hit the internet when I'm developing a spell and I'll, I'll look for um, herbs and stuff that have been used in the past, like willow is used for headaches. So if I'm making a pain charm, I'll, I'll use willow. So that's about all I'm doing um, as far as research. I just go out and do a search and pull in you know, elements. I fill up my toolbox, so to speak, and then I just let it go. Uh, I really like Rachel as a character, and I'd like you to just talk about developing Rachel and also the dual nature of witches, because that's become really important to her. I mean, in this, in the last couple of books, uh, mm-hmm. she's gone beyond her original character scope, and that yes, yes. Uh, Rachel found out in the book before this that um, the the childhood disease that she should have died from is actually an expression of her demon heritage that all witches are basically stunted demons and if they have too much demon in them too much of this demon enzyme they end up you know not living past a certain age and Trent's father took it upon himself to genetically and magically fix her so that she could survive it was just a favor for between Um, Rachel's dad and Trent's dad that this happened and it caused a lot of problems. I still don't know if Trent Sr. did this intentionally to try to end the demon elf war that's been going on for 5,000 years or if it was a mistake. We will find out in the next book or so because I don't know. This is one of those threads where I don't know where it's going and I'll just let the story tell me when I get to that point. How on which side we're going to end up on, uh, but yeah, the and it's caused a lot of problems in society that now the witches know at least the witches the important witches the ones making the decisions they know now what their heritage is and they're afraid to let the humans know uh, their background and they're trying to hide it and yet Rachel is coming out into the open now she's openly a demon she's a daywalking demon um, and. That's why she's having trouble at the DMV office trying to get a license because there there's no box on the form that says demon that she can check. So she is a non-entity. And, uh, yeah, I love bringing the humor in when I can. But. Well, I, I think, too, it's it's a lot of fun to to see, you know— we have kind of the action situations and the mysteries and, and that drive the plot too, but you have a lot of fun with the with the domestic lives of all these creatures. And I, I do, I do. I think the domestic life, the the cooking, the cleaning, the having your your washer chug chug chugging when the guy you like comes over and it's embarrassing. That's the important stuff. That's telling us who the characters are and and how they react. And it's very earthy, and the readers love it because they can identify with it really easily. Um, and they just kind of bond with Rachel, and, and the story goes. Once you believe in the character, you can believe anything that happens in that book. And, and I think, too, I love the kids, that there's, there's, everybody has kids running around. I think that's oh, that what makes it so new. charming. The kids are new, actually, yes. Um, I've always said that... Uh, when you bring in aliens or babies, the series is over. And um, I thought, you know what? If I bring in kids and they're not Rachel's, maybe I could push this envelope a little bit. And it's working really well. It's really fleshing out Trent's 
um, background in history because all of a sudden now he's a dad and he's got these kids and and it's a complete turnaround because before this he's always been this very posh, elegant, eligible bachelor and now he's got kids and uh, yeah, Terrence's dad. It's it and he, Rachel is seeing him completely different now. Are you going to bring in aliens anytime no. soon? No, <laughs> <laughs> no aliens. No, no, no. Uh, you know the other aspect of this of this book that I really loved is the is the plot itself, the mystery aspects of it, and I think you handle those really well. It's a you so I've taught. Let's ratchet back and talk about the different kinds of you have. We have two different kinds of. Uh, Police force that are in in your new world post turn world. Yes. Uh, the the I the is and the fib. Yeah. <laughs> the is yes. These are the inlanders who are policing themselves. They've been doing it forever and ever and ever. But now they actually, since they're out of the closet, they're um, they're kind of like the top dogs. They would be the FBI in our world. The ones who can come in and take over a complete crime scene. And then we have the fib, the poor humans who are trying to keep up and keep getting all their their best crime scenes jerked out from under them, uh, trying to do the best they can. Actually, the humans, though, have a much better data system. And they rely a lot on forensics, whereas the, the, the paranormals, they rely on their magic. So there's a lot of competition and a lot of friction between the two. And seeing uh, Rachel trying to work with the humans, and she's willing, but the humans aren't really willing to work with her. A few are. And that's where the fun comes in. Well, I like uh, Glenn. He's a he's a great character. I like Glenn too. <laughs> Talk about uh, you know creating this kind of these competing uh, police forces and and using them you know weaving them into the plot because you really set yourself up for a very complicated any plot that you write, no matter how simple you want it to be, has got to start to come be coming apart at the seams pretty rapidly. That's why I'm ending the series soon. <laughs> It is getting harder and harder to keep all these threads together. Um, but Glenn is a member of the FIB. He's he's a human. And his father has raised him to be um, as completely unbiased and uh, as he can be. Uh, and, and he's working with this red-headed flying off the handle witch and her, you know, her vampire partner. And somehow it works. Um, he's really trying to get the job done. And he's not only fighting the people in his own, in his own, you know, small world in, in the fib, he's fighting the IS who think he's, you know, he's a joke. And so watching him grow and develop and um, become more comfortable working with the Inlanders and, and not you know, taking any of their flack has been good. I like seeing, I like Glenn. He's very strong-willed and and he's, if I did a spin-off series, I would probably follow him because he's got the most going on. I, I well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, we there's one other character we haven't talked about. Who Who's Ivy? Ivy, oh yes. Ivy is Rachel's roommate. Um, she is a living vampire. She's actually a very important living vampire. She is the um, I, the child, I suppose you could say, of the old master vampire of the city who recently died in a previous book. But she's still very important. She's like um, the queen in waiting, so to speak. And nobody in the vampire world is happy that she is spending time with this witch in a church. Um, solving crimes when she is supposed to be doing much better, more important things. But Ivy is rebelling in the only way that she can. And she's trying to find love. She She's fallen in love with Rachel way back when they interned together at the IS before the books actually really start. Now, uh, there, another character in, in this novel, in all these novels, is the city of Cincinnati. Yeah, and I not never having been there before, I have to ask how much how how much liberty you take with the actual terrain. Oh, I love Cincinnati. Um, I chose Cincinnati purely on location, and I did a lot of research on it. And there is a lot in the books that is there. The the tunnels under the the city, those are there. Um, the um, the no. restaurant on top of the crew tower, I added that in because I thought every city should have a revolving restaurant. <laughs> I mean, you got to have that. Now, now let me get this straight. You mm-hmm. you 
when you uh, decided to create the series, you looked around, you shopped around for the right city to yes, set it in. I shopped around, yes. Oh, so you don't live in Cincinnati? No, I do not. Oh. In fact, before I wrote the books, the closest I got to Cincinnati was on the trip from Michigan to Florida. You would drive <laughs> by it. Um, but I do remember as a kid when we'd make that trip, we'd come around the corner on the interstate, and if you hit it right at night, the, the whole side of the hill would be just a, a wash and a glitter with lights. And that must have stuck in my head as being very magical because Cincinnati was my first choice to put the hollows. Now, uh, in this in this novel, there's a couple of really interesting locations. I have to ask, do you know, is there a military uh, base under a library? <laughs> I, 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 the library I, actually does take up an entire block. Oh, really? I do not know if there's a military base under it, but I thought that would be the place for it. Yes. <laughs> the tunnels running near it, mm-hmm. actually, those do exist. Um, yes, they do. When you uh, started this book, which which has a has a great plot that involves, uh, we'll just it begins with a a really distressing murder scene, yes. kind of a murder scene. It is demonic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things I like about uh, your book is there are these great set pieces. Um, they're really well described, and we just get in these places, and it's you know exciting and fun. It's a ripping yarn. It's really great to be there with Rachel. Um, and it's kind of horrific, but you you do a good job of taking us to the edge, but not like grossing us out. And I think that's a a, a, a real skill. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, the books have gone darker since we've started. Mm-hmm. Uh, the humor is still there, but the stakes are higher. And um, actually touching on a demonic crime where these horrific mutilations were taking place was hard for me to write. Um and, and like you said, I tried to bring you to the edge and, and then kind of focus on something else <laughs> while you process it. Um, I'm very squeamish by nature. I do not like horror at all. Uh, so I'm, well, I'm always surprised when they shelve me in horror because I don't consider the books horror. But maybe that's where I'm heading. What, what do you consider the books to be? Yeah, uh, Fantasy, but yet they're not because... Urban fantasy. I'm just gonna have to go with that. <laughs> well, I, I would say they're they're Kim Harrison novels, yes, and that's yes. uh, all they need to be. Mm. This book revolves around a, a group of humans, and, and tell us: have we have we met these humans before? The Hapa. No, we have not met the um, humans against paranormals. My Hapa, my hate group. Yes. Yes. I, I thought that was a very well. Uh, again, thank you. A nice a nice way to talk about things in this world mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. having to talk about this yes, world. Yes, actually Hapa came from an, a question that my editor asked me about um, a couple books ago. She she wanted to know, well, what about the humans? And we hadn't touched on the humans very much because I was more concerned with the paranormals and developing their species and their worlds. But as she pointed out, not all humans are going to be happy with the fact that these paranormals have come out of the closet and are clearly, you know, smarter or stronger or more beautiful than they are. And it got me to thinking that, yeah, there's going to be some hate groups out there. And I hadn't touched on them until we got to A Perfect Blood. And I kind of slid over that a little bit when I introduced them by having Rachel think to herself, I knew the hate groups were out there, but I ignored it because that's the world I wanted to live in, was a world without the hate groups. As as we uh, go through this book, there are some really great action scenes in here, ah, yes. and and I'm wondering how you uh, plot those out. Do you like map map you know map the characters on, on a grid? I mean, to to a degree, it seems like there's a bit of a D and D role playing game in this. Do you, have you done that? Or? I have often sketched out a scene and moved, you know, drawn people where they are just so I can keep track of it. Um, but as far as the the, uh, the physical action goes, I've got two very dusty black belts. Uh, they're very tiny black belts, oh. just enough to get myself in trouble. <laughs> That's uh, great. But I, but I like the martial arts. Um, uh-huh. And I pull on that quite a bit. So the stuff that you see in there should be possible. Whether I manage to, you know, accurately portray it and, and write it down properly is another story. But um, I, I write my action scenes like I write my sex scenes, which I don't think I have one in this one. They're very, I have very few sex scenes during the books, but I write them the same way. I want to know where everybody's hands are at all times, and I want there to be reaction as well as action from both characters. 
you do have a couple of uh, scenes that verge into romance in this. Yes. They're just very light. And I know you're a member of the Romance Writers yes, Association. I am. And, mm-hmm. and so talk about that whole aspect for this genre, for your books, which it seems very light in your books. Mm-hmm. But also just for the genre, which brings in, I you know, what is now the biggest demographic of readers, yes. which are women. Yes, uh, the romance readers actually really helped in um, getting my work out there and known, um, which is why I'm a member of the romance readers. Um, a lot of urban fantasy is more heavy on the romance, but again, some are heavy on romance, some are heavy on mystery. It, it all blends together. Um, The romance readers like a lot of the things that urban fantasy is known for. A lot of urban fantasy is a female protagonist. It's a first person. It's very close. You can relate to her really well. Um, They're um, strong-willed. They don't take no for an answer. And romance readers like that. Um, they, They eat it up. Now, I have made mistakes I will say, uh, I did not realize my romance readership was so large until I killed off my main love interest in one of the books. And they let me know about it, that that is breaking the rules of romance writing. You never kill off a main love interest. I think I lost a lot of readers for a book. You know, they had to mourn and get over the loss, but most of them, I think, came back with me. The other genre we find in here, and I think exceedingly well handled, is mystery. And I'm wondering what kind of mystery writers you've read. Not a whole lot. I really haven't. Um, I enjoy uh, watching the mysteries on TV, the the suspense ones in the movies and that kind of thing. But I do not have a big mystery uh, background as far as reading goes. It's just... I do a lot of plotting, (laughs) a lot of plotting to get that mystery element in there. And I'm so glad that you saw it in there because I would like to, to, you know, go kind of in that direction in my next series. You talk about a lot of plotting. Do you know how much of this plotting happens in that week when you're creating the book and how much happens in the subsequent months when you're actually writing? I would say it's 70 percent before and 30 percent during. I'd like to say it was 100% before, but I get distracted easily. And if the characters say, no, 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 we really need to go this direction, I will scrap all my old outlines and replot some more. Well, that's really interesting. I think that's probably one of the things that keeps the the novel so alive. And, and you know, it's it's there are some, you know, uh, nice twists in the, in the book that we don't see coming. Um, when you're creating the, the set pieces... There's a you know a, a kind of a, a effect of orchestration, uh, not just within the piece, but the pieces across the the novel itself. And I'd like you to to talk about you know achieving that level of orchestration so that it doesn't. On one hand, you know, if you read something that's an entire chase scene, you're just going to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if there's only one. If there's only 10 pages of chase scene, you're going to be asleep except for that 10 pages, maybe. So you do a good job with the balance. Um, Thank you. Actually, that might come from – I have one piece of software that I use when I write. Um, Besides my handwritten notes, I have a – a, uh, a spreadsheet that I'll use of, you know, the chapters down one side or chapters across the top and characters down one side. And I will actually plot out where the characters are. And doing that, I can see at a glance where my action is and where my pauses are. And I can see how long my, my days are in the book. And, and if I have a character I need in the last few chapters, I need to make sure that I have them in the first couple at least so that it's not a surprise when they get there. So I do actually have an outline of, you know, the whole big picture of the book to try to balance it out. Is that in Excel? It is in Excel, yes. Wow. I made that up. I started doing that about four or five books ago, and it's just slowly evolved into this piece of software that I have got to have now when I even start out plotting. It's made a big difference because now I can see at a glance when I'm going astray, and I can fix it even before I get to the plotting of it. Have you ever published any of those online? I have, and I have heard from writers who have said, this is fabulous, thank you, it's really helped me. But there is no wrong way to write, and what might work for one person won't work at all for another. 
Well, I think that's so interesting. Now, uh, you have you say you're working ahead. How far ahead are you in terms of your next series? Well, let's see. Um, my next se- well, the hollows. I'm aiming at twelve books or thirteen. There's a floater in there that I can decide what I want to do with. And mm-hmm. the tenth one just came out. The eleventh one is sitting on my desk at home for an editorial rewrite. When I get there, I was supposed to write the twelfth one this October, but I chickened out. And I wrote a manuscript that I'm hoping will be what comes after The Hollows. And it's odd. My, my, and my agent said, Dawn, you did this backwards. You're not supposed to write the next one until you finish the first series. But I had to know where I was going and feel comfortable that I had something after The Hollows before I could finish The Hollows with the bang that I wanted. And now that I know where I'm going, I can finish The Hollows just really with a satisfying this is it this is done no more wow and that's what I'm aiming for with happy endings all around but the the new one is still going to be urban fantasy because that's my love well I I, you know that makes perfect sense to me that you'd want to finish you want to have you know something already going before Mm -hmm. you finished it's a classic writerly technique you you uh write you Finish each day's work mm-hmm. with uh, with the next scene with a scene left incomplete. So when you get up in the morning, I don't can, do that. You no. don't do that. <laughs> I have to have the chapter done so that I'm spending all night in the next morning thinking about how I'm going to structure the next chapter. Do you write chapter by chapter? Yes, I do. One a day, or yeah, if I can work it, yes, one a day. Uh, how not every day. <laughs> <laughs> How long does it take you to write a chapter? I mean, um, I can write a fifteen-page chapter in about a day. Yeah, and that's a how many hour day? That's about an eight-hour day. Boy, that's that's impressive. Well, thank you. I've I've got a technique. It works for me. One of the things that's so so much fun about this is that you, um, when we read about a world that's rife with magic and come back to our world. I mean, you know, a little bit of that kind of crosses over. And it's nice to see how, um, too, the magic is, like, brought down to a degree in your world. Mm-hmm. It's not airy-fairy, even though there are fairies and uh-huh. pixies. I mean, even in a world where there's magic, things are kind of gritty and, and kind of unky, and mm-hmm. it doesn't... It does. Magic just doesn't help all that much. No, it really doesn't. Um, there's charms to make you look young, but it, you know they come with a bit of a cost, and they don't last forever. And sometimes it's easier just to go down to the store and get some Revlon and put on. When you're crafting, you know, on a prose level, mm-hmm. do you do a lot of revision? Do you do you like uh, write the humor in first? Does this all just uh, come out? It- comes out pretty much intact. Um, I usually will spend my morning writing out the dialogue for every chapter very mm-hmm. quickly, and it looks kind of like a messy script with just who's saying what and maybe a little bit of action in it. And then in the afternoon, I will take that and I'll fill in the blanks and um, end up with with my chapter, hopefully by the end of the day. Um, and it works for me. It keeps me focused. Otherwise, I'm off chasing rainbows and, and ideas. If I don't have that dialogue, it's it doesn't go anywhere fast. You've worked. Uh, talking of dialogue, you've done a couple of graphic novels yes, out, out of this. That what made what led to that decision? And talk about working with an artist. I, I would mean, love to. Yeah. Um, the idea to do the graphic novel came from my agent, actually. And I was ready to do something different. I felt my writing was starting to get a little stale, and I wasn't ready to move on from the hollows yet. And when he threw the idea of doing a graphic novel out, I jumped on it because they were going to let me script it. And I'm very tactile by nature, and I see these things unfolding like a movie would. And to be able to, you know, I actually drew the boxes and wrote in, you know, what I wanted to see and what the characters were saying and, you know, went page by page with it. And I had a great time with it. And then we worked with the artists. I got to hand pick um, the artists that I wanted to work with from the, the stable of artists that they had available for me and uh, work with him intensively. And then I worked with the colorist and I signed off on everything. And it was a lot of fun. Um, Blood Crime, or excuse me, Blood Work is out. It's been out for a while. Um, and the blood crime is following it 
at June, December. <laughs> I had to stop and think. That's coming out in December. Um, after that, I think if there are any more graphic novels, somebody else will be scripting them. Um, only because they, you only get about 120 words per page. And I like my dialogue too much. <laughs> and it's too restrictive for me. It leaves one to question. I mean... What are the hopes of us seeing this as a TV series? Very or? good, actually. Uh, CW has picked up the rights for The Hollows. Uh, Jordan Hawley, he's the guy that did Smallsville. He's working on the pilot right now. We're oh, aiming, really? Yes, we're working for the 2012-2013 season. Boy, um, that's fantastic. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, I am very excited about it. I can't wait to see what they're going to do. They're not going to follow the books as such. It's more. It's going to be more along the lines of this is what's happening between the books, which I think is a fantastic idea. Oh, that's nice for you. Now, do you have they told you who's going to play these parts yet? No. CW is very slow in making decisions in that area. So I will know come June what's going on a little better. And you'll, will you communicate this with your fans? Oh, your you website? know it. You know it. That's my job. I am the ambassador to to make them feel comfortable with what The Hollows is going to be like when it's translated to the small screen. You spend a lot of time working on the web on your blog, don't I you? I do. I do. I plan an hour to two hours every day talking with the readers, answering questions. I maintain my own website, which I like because it lets me you know, be a very small ship. And I can turn very quickly, and I can get information out to the readers very fast, and they know this. At least the ones who've been with me long enough, they know that if they have a question, they can come to me. I will have an answer, or I will find it for them, and it's paid off handsomely. It's a it's a nice website. What what software do you use? Uh, Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver. Oh, yes. well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Kim Harrison. Her new novel is A Perfect Blood. Thank you for joining me, Kim. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me in. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.